Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. This past Friday was Juneteenth. This holiday, recognized in most states, marks the June 19, 1865 announcement in Texas of the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery. This announcement came two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed on January 1st, 1863. We know, of course, that the end of slavery did not mean the end of the brutal treatment of African-Americans in this country. One of the starkest examples, recent examples of this inhumane treatment was the murder of George Floyd. Less than a month ago, on May 25th, George Floyd, who was 46, was murdered when a Minneapolis police officer knelt on Mr. Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes, despite Mr. Floyd telling him that he could not breathe. And even before Mr. Floyd's death, Ahmaud Arbery, who was 25, was shot and killed while jogging in Glynn County, Georgia, by two white men who felt deputized to target Mr. Arbery. And Brianna Taylor, who was 26, was shot and killed while in her home by Louisville police officers. And since Mr. George Floyd's death, 27-year-old Rayshard Brooks was shot in the back by an Atlanta police officer after being investigated for sleeping in his car at a Wendy's drive through lane. These killings have sparked protests and unrest throughout this country and the world. Many organizations, including colleges and universities, have issued statements expressing support for the African-American community. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about the role of universities and professors and the role that they can play in the face of the racial unrest. We have joining us for this conversation, Jarvis Hall, NCCU Professor of Political Science, and Ansel Brown, Visiting Professor at NCCU School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Happy to be here, thanks for having us. So I, like most black folk, I think, appreciate these statements that have been issued by individuals and businesses and institutions of higher learning. But I have to admit that I feel a really um, strong sense of frustration it feels like for many of these organizations that the light bulb has finally come on, even though these issues and these calls for justice have been going on for more than 400 years. Virtually every one of these statements include acknowledgement of the centuries of injustices suffered by black people. Uh, they also say that they remain deeply committed to addressing systemic racism in the United States. I'd like to first get your reactions to, to these statements. Professor Hall, let's start with you. Well, uh, as you said, there've been so many uh, from government to business to the sports world. It's almost been dizzying in the sense that this change in consciousness has taken place so quickly when so much has been going on, just as you said, uh, literally for centuries. And so 
a lot of it is hard to digest. We're trying to figure out exactly what has contributed to this very uh, quick change in consciousness. And But one wonders about the staying power of this kind of consciousness, that after, after some things have taken place, trying to address it, uh, the uh, problems that have been brought up, what kind of enduring social justice actions will be taken by those in government, those in corporate America, and those in our, uh, in the sports world. And Professor Brown, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would um, agree. I believe that the statements are important. I believe they are welcomed. But I uh, recently um, uh, posted a little statement of my own, and it's essentially that the decent will acknowledge their wrongs. The good will stop their wrongs, but the great will remedy their wrongs, repair their wrongs. And so I think the acknowledgement is an important first step, right? And then there has to be uh, curtailing of the behavior, um, both institutionally, systemically, um, in terms of real policy. And I think that's where we transition from the simple acknowledgement and the statements to real action on the ground, the policy changes that we've been calling for for as you mentioned, uh, you know, decades, centuries now. And so when we think about the role that universities and institutions of higher learning, universities and colleges play, are there additional obligations that we should be looking to when we're thinking about these institutions? Do they play a bigger role in ensuring that our society address these issues? I would say yes. It's always been a part of my personal uh, and professional philosophy that one of my obligations as a member of academia is to talk about these issues, to highlight them, to talk about them in more than a superficial way, to talk about uh, some of some of the systemic and fundamental uh, structural problems that may exist that continue to uh, generate and produce injustices and inequalities, and to provide uh, students with uh, a lens to look at what's going on that perhaps would be different from what you will find in journalism or um, in, in, in any other regular everyday life analysis, uh, but also to talk about from the policy in what could be done to address these things. And, and again, I think that there is an obligation for those in the professorate and especially those in political science and the social sciences, but also the humanities all over really to address these issues and do it in a way that is not just descriptive, but is very analytical, uh, but also prescriptive what can be done in order to bring about change, but also more importantly, I think, what can the students do in order to play a role themselves as individuals and collectively to bring about real enduring change? You know, that's the in interesting uh, response, but in, in a very real sense, haven't uh, universities been a part of the problem in the past and helped to foster the indifference uh, that uh, society has exhibited toward these uh, issues and concerns? I think that is the case, Professor Joyner. Uh, you know, institutions have been purveyors of misinformation, uh, warped ideas, deep-seated bigotries in our society. 
but I would like to add that oftentimes when we think about the university and the role of the university in our society, we typically see the universities as institutions of learning and education, and they are. Um, but if you think about the role of the faculty, particularly, for example, we are evaluated on our teaching, but we are also evaluated on our scholarship and on our uh, community engagement in terms of uh, tenure, promotion, et cetera. And so we have a fiduciary professional responsibility to the taxpayer to address the issues, to not only produce a scholarship, to engage the real problems that are facing the citizens of the state of North Carolina in particular. Let's just talk about our institution um, with the problems we face, um, with our content expertise. So for example, we're right now in a global pandemic. I cannot imagine an institution that puts itself out as a leader in medical uh, technology, not having some response to the um, coronavirus pandemic that we're facing, some sort of effort, some sort of collective uh, movement to address it in terms of the research and the remedy. And so I think for us as professors of law, professors of political science, professors in whatever capacity we serve our institutions to likewise deliver our content expertise to engaging real problems that are affecting our, um, our communities and our state in a larger scale, our nation and world. Yeah, Irv, uh, institutions do, do tend to, by their very nature, tend to reproduce and to support the status quo. And that's why it is incumbent upon those in academia who are actually in academia within the institutions to create spaces where you can have real conversations about these kinds of issues, where you can uh, critique not only society, but also the institutions that uh, one may be working at to see what the institutions can do in order to foster change, in order to uh, contribute to real robust discussion about these kinds of issues. And, you know, Jarvis, you have always taking your responsibility to engage the students in policy discussions and empowering them to be active and creating these spaces for these critiques. When you look at, though, and this kind of goes to Irv's question about haven't institutions of higher learning been part of the problem, do you see, do you see kind of universities collectively playing that role. So when we look at advancements that have been made in our country when it comes to the struggle for civil rights, do we typically think and do we typically see institutions of higher learning leading that charge? Well, certainly you see individual students um, and and organizations on college campuses. Uh, One cannot forget the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee which was founded just down the road at Shaw University in 1960, as well as uh, other organizations that uh, Professor Joyner has been involved in, like CORE and uh, and organizations like that. What we have seen though, uh, so college campuses are always gonna be, I won't say always the hotbed, but uh, certainly when social movements begin to germinate, we can almost expect that there's a role for those on college campuses to play a role. Now, what has happened in the last few decades, in the last couple of decades, I would say, is that there has been a community service movement, a civic engagement movement within academia 
You see it at individual campuses as well as within uh, organizations of campuses. Some of our higher education associations have placed an emphasis on what institutions of higher learning should be playing with regard to trying to uh, repair our democracy because they see the uh, alienation that a lot of young people feel. They see the, uh, the lessening of a social capital that binds people together, this sense of community. And so institutions have intentionally attempted to do things on their individual campuses and collectively to enhance the civic engagement role that uh, campuses play. And sometimes that translates into advocacy and public policy uh, promotion and things of that nature. So yes, there college campuses, because uh, you have young people there, uh, have always been at the forefront as a part of the vanguard of uh, social justice movements. But now college campuses are recognizing that they have a role to play too. But sometimes that goes against the existing political environment. You know, I'm, I'm aware that you've had uh, a, a number of prominent uh, universities who were complicit in or actively engaged in the uh, slave trade uh, early in their uh, history. And, uh, and many of those uh, institutions have remained uh, silent, particularly in efforts to achieve uh, civil rights for African-Americans. And then when the uh, civil rights movement uh, began, even on uh, the uh, historically black colleges and universities, uh, you had uh, resistance by administrators to the involvement of the students that you talked about uh, who wanted to, uh, to get uh, involved in these activities. Has that mindset changed by uh, universities, particularly uh, the uh, HBCUs? Again, they're institutions. So by their very nature, they tend to support and help to reproduce the status quo. And so that particular force is still there. HBCUs and, speci and especially public HBCUs have typically been in a tenuous kind of situation in the sense that they feel pressure, real or imagined, from the state in terms of funding. And so they, and this is a generalization because there were exceptions to this, but in general, they had a tendency to try to uh, quell political activism on their campuses, especially during the 1950s and the 1960s when uh, those things were uh, percolating. And to some extent, that has changed. Uh, again, there is this encouragement of civic engagement, but it's, it's kind of conservative, I would say, and conservative in the sense that, yeah, we want you to push, but we don't want you to push too hard. We don't want you to push in terms of trying to change the fundamentals of how society works. And so, therefore, we want you to be engaged, but we want you to be engaged in sometimes ways that are not as challenging and as, uh, quite frankly, militant as perhaps it needs to be in order to bring attention to whatever issue is at hand. So yes, the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same would apply here, I think, because things have changed, but at the same time, there are these pressures, there, there are these uh, 
structural impediments to institutions being involved in trying to bring about substantial change. But within institutions and some pressure from outside, institutions and administrations at these institutions, and in particular HBCUs, have been a little more supportive. I know on our campus, when we've tried to do some things, in general, we uh, have had the general support of the administration. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're talking about the uh, role of uh, university professors and the institutions itself to address issues of uh, racial bias and other inequities within our society. We're talking with uh, Professor Jarvis Hall of the uh, Political Science Department at North Carolina Central uh, University and uh, Professor Ansel Brown, who is at the uh, uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're gonna take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we will be right back to uh, continue this discussion. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and these are your weekly announcements. The Virtual Justice Project, in partnership with the Financial Clinic of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, presents 40 Acres and a Degree. This program is designed to address various issues concerning finances in our current climate. Programs range from identity theft and the various ways in which you can protect your name and information, all the way to student loans and the different methods that may be used to manage them more efficiently. The next upcoming event within the series is scheduled to be held on Wednesday, June the 24th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m., followed by the final event within the series, which is scheduled to be held on Wednesday, July the 1st, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m. For more information regarding the Virtual Justice Project or any of its upcoming events, please visit the North Carolina Central University School of Law website at law.nccu.edu. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been your weekly announcements. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are continuing our conversation about the uh, roles of uh, universities, university uh, professors and administrators in addressing issues affecting uh, racial equality and some of the uh, inequities that uh, are visited upon uh, minority uh, communities. Uh, Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU political science department and Professor Ansel Brown, uh, who is with the NCCU School of Law, our guest uh, to talk about uh, this topic. And we concluded uh, our first part talking about the uh, whether universities and administrators were somehow complicit and then uh, what uh, kinds of history is there which uh, speak to that issue. And uh, Professor Brown uh, was uh, preparing uh, to uh, provide some insight uh, into that before we took our break. So, Professor Brown. Thank you, Professor Jorney. You, you pose an important question 
of the role of the institutions of higher learning uh, specifically in perpetuating the problem of social injustice and racial inequities. And so in some ways, uh, institutions of higher learning stand, uh, serve as the guardians of the status quo, right? But in other regards, they are laboratories of innovation and change, social change to be specific and other changes in society. And so one thing that I wanted to note is oftentimes when we think about the institution, again, we're talking about here the, the university institution, we think of administrators, right? But we have to keep in mind that the university at its core is not um, the administration, whether that be at the institutional level or at the state level, if you're talking about state universities, but the core of the institution first and foremost would be the students, right? And also the faculty. And I believe um, in terms of the pushback on some sorts of institutional entrenchments of the status quo, it is imperative that students and faculty leverage our central role in the vitality of the institution in being those agents of change and innovation. And so I do believe that if the faculty stand collectively, stand resolutely, and stand courageously to push back on the problems that we are encountering, I don't know that the administrators or any sort of um, administrative, you know, digging in uh, or entrenchment can forestall that. And so I think it's as, again, as faculty members and faculty members who are working on the ground with our students, I believe it's our obligation. Again, it's our, our, our professional obligation. And it's also our ethical and moral obligation to engage the issues that we see in our respective areas of discipline. And so um, I, I would agree that um, there has been institutional entrenchment, but I believe that faculty and students have the leverage to change that equation. Yeah, uh, when we think about curriculum changes, programmatic development on our campuses, oftentimes they are driven by market trends and market forces, which it's inevitable that that would lead to some sort of support of the status quo in terms of the kind of student that we uh, produce. But just as Professor Brown said, the impetus for change can be internal within uh, within the institution. And, and as I said, there has been a movement within higher education that has attempted to do what they would say is an effort to reinvent uh, institutions of higher education so that they become promoters of our democracy and promoters of our democracy in a sense of uh, not only encouraging civic engagement and voting and things of that nature, but how does one use their individual disciplines, be it in the social sciences, the humanities, or even the natural sciences, in order to address real societal issues that may promote more equity uh, and more justice in society? So, so we have certainly seen that movement, and perhaps it's not as prevalent and as robust as it should, but there's this impetus within higher education to sort of reinvent uh, institutions of higher education to play that very vital role. 
Yeah, and that that raises this question that I have when we're thinking about the role of the professor and professors play, you know, they wear many hats, you know, so we uh, have our specific classes, we advise students, we um, advise them individually when it comes to classes that they should take, uh, we advise student organizations, um, as you noted, uh, Professor Brown, the scholarship component. I want to focus on the classroom for a minute. And, you know, it, it's obvious when you're teaching a class that focuses on, you know, race and society. Uh, so Professor Joyner teaches a race in the law class. Um, and so, you know, those classes obviously focus on these issues. What can professors do or what should professors be doing when they are teaching a class that may not be as obvious? Because one of the things that we do know is that when we're looking at racism in this country, it affects every single system and institution in this country, whether it's you know blatantly obvious or not. So for example, if you've got someone who's teaching an economics course, it may not at first blush appear as though there's a racial component, but we know all too well that there is. What are your thoughts about what professors should be doing in their classes, affirmatively doing in their classes, even if those classes aren't the ones that one would typically think about when we're looking at social injustices? Well, for one, um, I believe pedagogically, in terms of teaching and learning, it's important to relay what you're uh, teaching to students in a way that is practical in a way that resonates with real life challenges and circumstances that students engage and will engage in their future and present pursuits. And so I think from a teaching standpoint, you know, when you have students who are in, encountering um, these real issues on a daily basis, as you uh, indicate in every facet of life, um, I believe it makes your delivery of the content resonate when you connect it in a real and practical way. In terms of the social impact of what we're teaching, as you indicated, uh, you know, these issues are not limited to the law or to um, the criminal justice system. They touch everything, you know, economics, health areas, those who are going into education, financing. Um, you, you can't name any subject matter that institutional injustice does not touch. And so I believe you have to bring as a faculty member, whatever it is you're teaching, um, you need to, you have responsibility, again, an ethical responsibility to the student, but also to society, to the communities and the families who are paying the bill for us to teach their students, to make sure that the content and the information we are relaying to the students not only empower them, but empowers their families and their communities. And so um, to me, that's a no brainer uh, that faculty have to engage whatever the subject matter. And, and I think it's an important question, an important, an important point that you raised, Professor Dawson, that any faculty member, whether you're even in, if you're in physics, right, that you utilize the classroom space to engage social issues. Yeah, when we look at the uh, the public pronouncements of our institutions of higher learning, including ours, uh, uh, it's, it's almost unavoidable coming across something that talks about the uh, social justice mission, the uh, 
civic engagement framework that uh, is supposed to be a part of what the university is uh, doing. And what we have to do is as professors, uh, we have to make sure that we um, help to create this kind of student that we say we create uh, or produce. We claim that we will produce a student uh, that can play a significant role in the economy of uh, North Carolina and the nation and the world. But we also say that we produce a student that would have a sense of social consciousness or social awareness and be civically engaged. When you really go, when you really look into uh, our strategic plan and as I said, uh, other public pronouncements of what we claim that we do. So given that, uh, it is incumbent upon the administration to provide the space as well as other resources for professors in the classroom, be they in the social sciences, the humanities, um, uh, the natural sciences, including the chemistry and physics, you know, with the tools that would uh, allow them to help students see what role they can play as chemists, as physicists, uh, as um, English professors, as political scientists, that will help them um, uh, see and analyze uh, what's going on with regard to social, political, and economic issues. But again, the role that they can play as professionals and as just members of the community. And again, going back to this movement that I was talking about in higher education, there are efforts to uh, provide workshops and what have you to show how you can uh, introduce civic engagement across all the disciplines, not just the usual suspects, the social sciences and the humanities, but also the natural sciences. And for me, again, I would suggest that that's a part of the obligation of higher education because it's what we claim that we do. And so if we claim that we do that, we have to be about the business of really doing it in the classroom as well as outside the classroom. Yeah, but how, how do you address then those uh, faculty members, which I would contend uh, represent the majority, uh, <laughs> who have a different uh, point of view, who uh, are conservative and are satisfied with the uh, status quo and the perpetuation of the, uh, the, the status quo and uh, don't believe that uh, students should be actively uh, engaged in uh, robust dialogue and discussion out in the uh, public uh, square. Uh, is, 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 is that uh, view uh, one that is uh, stifled or encouraged or is a part of the robust uh, discussion that is supposed to take place uh, within the uh, campus community? Well, it has to become a part of the culture of the campus. It can't be superficial. It can't just be um, in a couple of courses. Uh, it has to be embedded in the curriculum uh, with certain courses and across different courses um, in the various disciplines. And it, it can't just be in the classroom. Uh, it, 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 there, has, there has to be some sort of co-curricular things going on programmatically that would encourage these things. So that even somebody seeking a job at NCCU as a part of the faculty, when, when they know they got here, that the, part of the expectation is of course uh, teaching 
scholarship and service, but as a part of that service, it would be to uh, help to, again, create the kind of student that we claim that we are creating with regard to the social consciousness. So it's it's a long-term thing is what I'm getting into because, you know, cultural change is, is hard. And, um, um, and that's why I said we, you, you need the administration to help to create an environment, to provide the resources, to provide the infrastructure, if you will, for this cultural change to take place. Just talking about it is not going to do it. Uh, it has to become uh, something that's embedded in what we claim that we do. And I would agree. I, I believe that um, we do have to have the academy as a place where you can have that free and robust discussion, Professor Joyner. Uh, I think that has to be safeguarded. But I would agree that we have to create a culture where um, this sort of classroom engagement exchange um, happens. Um, and um, I, I think at minimum, uh, any faculty member should be able to engage the classroom in a way that conveys information to the student in the context of the role of that discipline in the larger social fabric. I think that's a bare minimum that um, we should all be able to agree to that no discipline exists in isolation from the larger society. And so I think at, at, at minimum, um, that needs to be something that honestly is mandated in terms of curriculum um, policy. But in terms of the exchange of ideas, I believe that the culture um, should be such that um, a faculty member acknowledges that you are in a space where um, social justice is a high um, value of the institution. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Professor Jarvis Hall, who is a professor of political science at North Carolina Central University, and Professor Ansel Brown, who is a visiting professor at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about the roles and functions of universities and college professors in the face of this racial unrest that we are in today. and quite frankly, every day. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasha Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition a government for redress of grievances. The right to protest is a fundamental right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment and is an essential component of democracy. Though demands for social and political change have become more expansive in recent decades with the rise of social media, mass gatherings and demonstrations against those in power are no stranger to the world and the nation's political history. In fact, for centuries, Americans have taken to the streets to make our voices heard, to effect change, and to fill and display the power and solidarity of mass gatherings even before the adoption of the First Amendment in 1791. Your constitutional right to protest is most protected in traditional public forums such as streets, sidewalks, and parks. Police may not break up a gathering unless there is a clear and present danger of riot, 
disorder, interference with traffic, or other immediate threat to public safety. The recent unlawful and unwarranted death of an African-American man, George Floyd, have ignited many around the nation to invoke their First Amendment protections to speak out against police brutality and corrupt practices by law enforcement. Unfortunately, acts such as the one this nation has recently been confronted with are not new occurrences and may occur again. This tragedy only confirms why protests are so vital to our problematic system. Protests bring people together, help bypass news blackouts and an unsympathetic media, provides an essential voice for the people, and especially people of color, and as we have seen, compel those in power to invoke change. To learn more about your right to protest, more information is at aclu.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Jarvis Hall, Professor of Political Science at NCCU, and Ansel Brown, Professor at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about the roles and functions of university and colleges and professors in dealing with situations of racial unrest. Um, right before the break, um, Jarvis, you were talking about, and, and Ansel, you were commenting on uh, the need for cultural change on campuses and um, what professors need to do and what their obligation is. When, when we're thinking about cultural changes, and this gets to, I think, some of the frustration that I have with these statements that have come out, and, and we've talked about how these statements are certainly important, but how do we hold institutions accountable? Um, and so Jarvis, as you mentioned, um, we've got to have, we've got to have this cultural shift. How do we make sure that that shift is occurring? Because my fear is, and I know the fear of many, is that, you know, the momentum will end at some point. And a year from now, we will be back here because someone has died, a black man or woman has died at the hands of police officers. And we'll be looking again and we'll have statements again. Um, how do we make sure that the institutions do what it is that they are saying that they are going to do? Yeah, we, uh, I'm actually working with a group now where we're trying to infuse more civic engagement uh, into the campus and make it, again, a part of the culture. Now, um, uh, North Carolina Central University does have a great heritage uh, in terms of civic engagement, especially by students and by some professors. Uh, but again, there's so much untapped uh, energy and resources that uh, could really enhance the role that NCCU plays. So it's all about accountability. And it's not just keeping uh, professors accountable in terms of how they teach their classes. Uh, and of course, we want to maintain and encourage academic freedom, but we also want to encourage and empower uh, a faculty to uh, be able to uh, use their uh, discipline uh, paradigms uh, to look at 
issues of social justice, but we also have to make uh, the administration accountable. Uh, we have to remind them uh, from time to time what their commitment, uh, what their commitments are. And again, when you look at uh, our basic documents, uh, our history, our heritage as an institution, as well as our strategic plan, which includes the mission and the core values and, 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 and the goals and objectives, we have to remind them that uh, not only are we trying to create individuals who could fit into the existing job market, but we also trying to create change agents. Uh, and um, uh, it could be a hard sell because it's sort of, it, one, it takes a lot of energy and all of us have too much on our plates now <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it's sort of viewed as an add-on. And that's part of the problem too, that this kind of thing is always viewed as an add-on as opposed to being a fundamental part of what the institution does. It has become a, a true core value. Uh, and again, those are the things that we claim that we do as a core value. Uh, but uh, when we when we are evaluated, like uh, Professor Brown mentioned earlier, in terms of scholarship, in terms of teaching, and in terms of service, uh, how is it rewarded um, within the way we are evaluated as faculty members? So those are the kinds of things that have to take place if we're going to take it seriously. Well, what do you tell students? Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that one of the roles that uh, professors play uh, is uh, preparing students for the job market and preparing them to be marketable out in the uh, economic uh, community or in the professions uh, for which they, uh, they, they, they study. Uh, and knowing uh, full well that uh, their activism on campus might uh, taint uh, their uh, acceptability. Uh, how do you help students to understand the gravity of the issues that they are facing, but yet at the same time prepare them uh, to respond uh, to those issues in a manner that does not taint uh, their uh, marketability at the end of the day? You know, um, this is a very important balance that we have to engage students in. But I think we have to help students to realize as educators that your education is not simply a, an individual pursuit. Uh, this is not just about, it is about fundamentally, of course, you advancing your, yourself, your, uh, your family, um, creating a better future for yourself, um, uh, having a successful career and profession. But ultimately, it has to be a fundamental core value that we are communicating to the student that your professional um, achievement and accomplishment fits into a larger context. The mission of our university is truth and service. And I think that value is embedded in the mission of North Carolina Central University. And that has to be something that we um, convey to students from orientation to graduation at every step of the way that your pursuit is not simply for your own security, but it's to secure the progress and the uplift of the larger community. I think it just has to be a core value. 
And the reality is that sometimes there is a price to pay when we take a stand for what is right, what is good, and what is just. And I think that also needs to be a value and a reality that we are um, frank and transparent and honest with students about. But this is our only shot. This is the only life we will have to take the gifts, the talents, and the knowledge that we acquire to make some sort of impact and to leave a legacy. And I believe as not only professors, but as human beings, we have to instill in our students the importance of leaving, living and leaving, living a life and leaving a legacy of value, meaning, and purpose. And so that's what I would personally convey to students with regard to marketability and those sorts of things is that the, the game is much bigger than that. Yeah, and you know, and I would argue that other than it's the right thing to do, <laughs> uh, I, I would suggest that uh, acquiring the skills that go along with civic engagement and social consciousness are skills that could make you more marketable uh, because you have to uh, think about your ability to organize in order to work with people. Uh, I think as we develop uh, uh, things within the curriculum and the uh, uh, co-curriculum, uh, internships and what have you, we have to look at the development of certain skills uh, that go along with that and not just uh, talking about um, um, I'm socially conscious, you know, uh, because uh, I know certain historical facts, but also know how to organize. I know how to bring people together. I know how to advocate. So those are marketable skills at the same time that would, should become a part of the portfolio of our students when they go into the job market. So it's not uh, either or, it's, uh, it's a both and, I think. And how do students, what are your suggestions for students on what they can do to hold their professors and their institutions accountable? So students, you know, that we have at NCCU, but also students at all institutions of higher learning, because again, I mean, this goes back to, um, you know, Jarvis's point, which is you've got these institutions making these claims, you know, these are the types of students we're producing, the, this is, you know, we have a commitment to seeing social change. How do the students make sure that these institutions are held accountable and in fact do what they say they are doing? It's true, accountability has to run both ways. Uh, there has to be uh, supply and demand running in both ways. Uh, so the students have to when they come to NCCU and, and and other and especially HBCUs, but not just HBCUs, I think many students do come with the expectation that they will be exposed to uh, certain issues, uh, certain ways of looking at issues, uh, and certain opportunities to be engaged in those issues that they didn't have the opportunity to do in high school or in the individual communities. I think that's a part of the expectation. What students have to do is to speak collectively uh, through their student government association and other organizations that are on campus to make sure again that, they, that, that um, faculty members are aware that this is something that students actually want and have an expectation for, but also to uh, remind gently uh, the administrations 
uh, on uh, the individual campuses and, uh, and reminding them, especially again, through their public pronouncements, our documents that, you know, to say, this is what we do. And um, uh, so it's important that students speak uh, with one voice, not always saying the same thing, uh, but that in general, this notion of uh, our campus is a place where we learn to look at things, to look at things critically, to look at things analytically, to look at things uh, with an eye toward uh, uh, producing social change. And um, uh, you do that in, in the classroom itself by, by asking certain questions. You do it by talking to your individual professors. But again, more generally, you do it collectively through student organizations and especially the SGA or other organizations that exist. Just think of the divine nine, uh, uh, our fraternities and sororities collectively talked about the importance of social change on our individual campuses. Or the athletes, for example, too. Yes, and I, I believe students need to recognize um, the, the power of their voice. Um, whether they realize it or not, faculty and administrators are very sensitive um, to the, the, the voice and the demands of students. Sometimes that there, there may be a defense that goes up, but the reality is that there is a high level of sensitivity uh, to the voice and particularly the collective voice of students. The things that get supported on campus oftentimes um, are a result of the student voice. Uh, when it is um, uh, correctly, uh, effectively, and properly um, uh, relayed. And so um, I, I would uh, concur with everything that Dr. Hall has um, suggested by way of vehicles of uh, letting that voice be heard. But I, I think um, more fundamental uh, than that, I think for the student to acknowledge the power of their voice and then to take that step through those vehicles that Dr. Hall has referenced. And, and let me mention one other thing too, because I think it's important that um, faculty, when they come on campus, especially junior faculty, when they uh, have mentors uh, that uh, they can see what uh, more senior faculty have been doing with regard to the kinds of things that we're talking about. And, uh, um, and quite frankly, uh, when I came to this campus, I looked at certain people who were doing things uh, in that direction. And the Professor Joyner is, of course, one of the ones uh, that I try to model myself after. Um, I had known of his uh, work uh, before I came to campus. And I was uh, more than happy to have the opportunity to uh, work with him on uh, certain things. And so this notion of mentorship of junior faculty uh, is also important in terms of that cultural change that we were talking about. Yes, many of us model ourselves um, <laughs> <laughs> after Professor Joyner. He yes. <laughs> is a mentor for many and a, a shining example of what it means to do more than just, than just talk. Um, yeah, so a, a couple of, of, you know, when we're thinking about students and, and holding uh, the institutions accountable and the role that students play and students have oftentimes driven the schools and the universities and places, you know, that, that the, where the institution wasn't leading the charge. Um, 
Ansel, there was something that, that you had said early on about the obligation of these institutions of higher learning being responsible to not just the students, but also to the community, which then raises this question, if there's an affirmative obligation that these institutions have to the community at large, what can the community do to ensure that these institutions are held accountable as well? And, and again, I keep going back to these statements and they're lovely and just don't wanna be back here a year from now and, and we just get more statements without seeing any real traction. And so the community should have the ability to make sure that these institutions do in fact make significant changes. Any thoughts about, about how the community can hold these institutions accountable? Yeah, absolutely. As I referenced, um, in the case of state institutions, we're funded by ta the taxpayer. And I believe that the taxpayer um, has also a responsibility and a role, as you suggest, Professor Dawson, in holding um, elected officials accountable and those who are appointed by elected officials being administrators. And so I do believe that mobilization at the community level is important uh, for the community to uh, write to, members of the community to write uh, to legislators in our state general assembly uh, when there are issues that um, arise um, that affect our communities and um, specifically issues that touch the campus community or um, as we've been you know arguing that the you know the role of the campus and being a voice to engage these issues and so um, I, I think absolutely the voter right um, has a stake in not just going to the ballot and casting a vote, but holding elected officials accountable if they are to secure our votes for the appointments that they make and the policy that is implemented as it um, affects our universities and the ability of the universities to address openly and effectively the issues that are touching the members of the community. Yeah, we need stronger ties to the community. Uh, we need to create an environment where uh, there's uh, not a um, an apparent uh, uh, border boundary between the community and the uh, and the campus. Um, we have to uh, institutions have to become members of the community where they are. There's this notion of of uh, the anchor institution. Um, Whereas the institution of higher learning is uh, not only in the community, but of the community. Uh, and certainly we have a uh, good uh, community service program uh, here and that has helped. Uh, but in terms of another of, uh, of other issues, we uh, need to develop and encourage and foster uh, closer uh, town gown relationships uh, so that we can be on the same page with regard to certain issues, uh, for example, voting rights and and, and the very issue that uh, led to this discussion of, of, of police violence. And also it has to be pointed out that uh, the police violence is just part of the uh, problems that exist, uh, that when we speak of institutional racism, we have to look at all of the social spheres, uh, the politically, economically, and, and what have you. And it's gonna take a lot of work and sustained work and people have to be uh, have to be patient, but at the same time they have to be impatient because 
if you're going to push for real change, you have to do it with a sense of urgency, but understanding that it is a marathon and not just a sprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just have a few minutes left. Um, Professor Brown, you had gathered some of us together to, to kind of begin some discussions about what professors can specifically do. Can you share just a little bit of, of what um, you hope to see at NCCU in terms of professors uh, taking some concerted action to better engage or, or more fully engage students in community? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that we've um, been discussing is the, the compiling of information. There are so many activities, right, that um, are, that are, um, uh, that people in the community, students are engaging, right? Um, and so we want to provide a resource for students, faculty, staff, administrators to know what they can do, how they can get involved. Everyone will not um, engage in social justice efforts in the same way, but certainly we can be a repository uh, where people can come to that repository and know how they can engage. That's one thing. The other thing that we've been exploring is to establish um, some sort of uh, institution um, that would be a clearinghouse of policy and research, teaching, and community engagement where these sorts of issues can be addressed on a consistent basis from a disciplinary standpoint. Um, there are also some more sort of on the ground policy um, efforts that I believe that we can be engaging. There are um, several, um, uh, a number of pieces of legislation at the federal, state, and local level that I think uh, we as faculty administrators and students can certainly uh, be informing one another on in terms of um, how we can get behind those um, policy changes that are really going to effectuate changes on some of these issues that are affecting our community. All right, well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Jarvis Hall, Professor of Political Science at NCCU, and Ansel Brown, Visiting Professor at NCCU School of Law. And we'd like to thank you, of course, our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you miss this show ever on Sunday evenings, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. <laughs>